Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Hey everyone, welcome back to Thought Crime and Keto Crime. Today I've got the first book in Jason Mao's The Warrior Chapter series. This is the series that kind of personifies his whole speaking speaking subject known as the warrior ethos there's also other books on something called the warrior ethos out there he's also written a book about it but basically it's like 15 points that every leader and religious person should know to be able to combat evil in the world the warrior ethos and this is kind of a series of books that he wrote as historical backstories to some of the people that appear in the book of mormon from what i understand now again this is the only book of his I'm going to read. Uh, this one was, it's approximately 600 pages. It's available on Audible, actually read by Jason Mao himself to the tune of about 11 hours. So it's a much longer book. In fact, you could put all of Chad Daybell's books together, the ones that we read, and it would encompass this one book. So pretty long book. It's also... Um, I'm going to say this again because I always feel like I have to say it. I am not a historical or religious expert on the LDS Church. My knowledge of the LDS Church comes from the one little informational video I've done on it. I'll link that here. And that was just from cursory uh, research on the background. So my knowledge has came from the books that I have read by these LDS authors, even though I know Chad Daybell is fringe. Pretty sure Jason Mao is fringe, too. But uh, anyway, so my knowledge and everything I'm saying about the LDS Church in this video, in this episode, is from this book. So please don't think I'm trying to insult the LDS Church at all, because I'm not. So with that, I'm also going to put uh, all my research and everything, I'll put a link to the book down below. Also, a shout out to my patrons, Stephanie Murch. Stephanie Mertz, and Demelza Pascal. Thank you so much for your continued support and look forward to seeing you in those live streams. If you'd like to join us, there's a link to my Patreon down, Patreon down below. I'll put a link above. But with that being said, let's get into Jason Mao's first book and the War Chapters series, a series about the journey of the lost tribes of Israel over the water to the new world and then everything up to the wars that eliminated the Nephites. So let's get into it. The very first book in that series, A Hero Rises. So we open in sometime BC in the uh, ancient kingdom of Judea and Israel in the city of Jerusalem. A man named Lehi is told by God that he must flee with his family for his own good, that because the people in Jerusalem have turned away from his laws, that God is about to bring a conquering force down on them. So Lehi gets up and tells his oldest son, Laman and Lemuel, as well as his younger sons, Nephi and Sam, that they must go. They must gather everything and go. Now, his two oldest sons were against it. They didn't think there was any way that God would bring down a crippling force on the kingdom of Jerusalem and that their, their father was kind of foolish to go. However, Nephi and Sam agreed with him. 
And so there was a bit of a squabble, but eventually everyone packed up and left. They were in the wilderness for a while, and God then told Lehi to send his sons to get the brass plates, which had the entire history of the kingdom of Israel written down on them, according to this book, from a man named Laban. Now, Laban was evil and, and was kind of an antichrist or an anti, uh, anti-God character from person within the city, and he had somehow gotten control of these brass plates. Now, he sent all all three three of he sent three of his sons back to get the plates, and Laban basically told them to give them, and he tried to have the boys killed by his servants. Once he told them he wasn't giving them the place, and they ran and hid outside the city walls. Uh, Laban and Lemuel wanted to go home and just forget about it. Where Nephi wanted to fulfill his promise to his father and get the plates, so. The two older boys, Laman and Lemuel, remained hidden in the wilderness while Nephi went in to try to attempt to get the plates again. He went back, he went to Laban's home where he found Laban passed out drunk somewhere in the front of his house. And he said that here was the perfect opportunity to get it. He actually took Laban's own sword, which was this huge sword that had 12 jewels in it, one for each tribe of Israel. He took it, he raised it above his head, and he struck Laban dead. He also took Laban's armor and other clothes off of him and put it on him just in time for a young servant by the name of Zoram to run out looking for his master, and he immediately thought Nephi was his master Laban. And he helped him carry the brass plates out of the house and out of the city into the wilderness. And when they located uh, Nephi's brothers, Laman and Lemuel, Zoram wanted to run away, but they immediately captured him. And he told, and Nephi told him that if he would continue to help, that he would, his family would be blessed in the in the kingdom of Israel. So he stayed with them. So they eventually returned to their father and presented him with to Lehi with the with the brass plates. So the family is still living in the wilderness for a few years, I guess. And God appears to Lephi again and tells him that he should send his sons to a, a man named Ishmael within Jerusalem and to have him, his boys, marry Ishmael's daughter. So that happens. And then they also are directed to build this huge ship so we're having Noah's Ark part two here. Uh, and in that ship, Lehi and his family travel across the huge ocean and arrive at the North American continent. And this is what, and God tells him this is the promised land of old. So Lehi is actually the greatest blessed of, of God's people, I suppose. While there... They prospered, many generations were born, but the descendants of Laman and Lemuel formed the Lamanites that basically had their own interpretation of what God was, which was to manifest God into something known as the Great Spirit, and this is going someplace. So they worshipped the Great Spirit, they became much more attached to uh, using psychedelic drugs and worshiping nature, worshiping the great spirit, becoming one with nature. Um, they did not use armor. 
for the most part in their battles. They became pro prolific archers and riders of wild horses and basically became quite tanned in the sun, according to this book. So I think you know where this is going, that the Lamanites were the Native American tribes. Schwarzes. No, no, seid nicht mehr sugar. Laws in Also, the descendants of, remember Zoram, that servant that um, ne Nephi had spared? Well, he became sort of an antichrist among the people and was one of the major reasons of the divide between the sons of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Nephi and Sam. So... The descendants of Zoram, known as the Zoramites, became kind of the ruling class of the Lamanites, for lack of a better way to put it. On the flip side, you have uh, the descendants of Nephi and Sam. Sam kind of disappeared somewhere, but, you know, I'm just guessing here uh, about Sam. So you have them becoming the, the Neophyte tribe, which actually kind of clung on to the old world rules that God had set for them in the old world. They used all the traditions of the old world, that is using armor, armoring their horses, developing many types of fighting styles, cavalry, infantry, archers. Uh, they also maintained their light skin color. And uh, I know they don't do it now, but for a long time, dark-skinned people were considered either with the curse of Cain or, or former Lamanites or angels that came to earth because they didn't take Christ's side in the great war, celestial war. So these are the neophytes. These are the good guys. And so in the present time that we're in, a Lamanite, Lamanite war chief by the name of Zarahema, as I said, I may not be pronouncing these names right. I apologize. I'm trying. Who was a descendant of Zoram and a Zoramite had become the main war chief of the Lamanite, Lamanites and was star, had started a series of wars over and over with the Nephites. And so we're in the middle of one of those wars and we see the major general, major captain over the Nephite army whose name was Moroni. And we catch up with him while he's sitting in his command tent during a campaign waiting for reports from scouts that have been sent out to see where the Lemanite army is. And he was told that they cannot locate them. Now, his best friend is his cavalry general by the name of Amuhuhai. Amuhuhai. And we're privy to some thoughts that Amuhuhai is having about his best friend, Moroni. They've grown up together. Um, Moroni's father, Joshua, was kind of a surrogate father to Amahuhai. So, yeah, they're, they're really close. And we get in, we're able to get into his head during this conversation because Moroni gets up from the table he's sitting at and strides over to get some water from his water bucket. And Amahuhai has this whole thing in his head where he's talking about, God, he's big. He's gorgeous. His muscles. Jason, I know what you were going for here. You were going here for the perfect descriptor of a perfect soldier. And since there were no women in camp, 
you couldn't really have a woman do the descriptor, so you're having his best friend do it. And this is very Alexander the Great sounding, so I'm going to say, yeah. Joey, do you like movies about gladiators? So after we get out of his bromance, love fest, thoughts in his head, we get back to the party at hand, and that's them discussing what strategies there are. Zarahemni might launch upon them. And so we go into this tirade where Moroni is describing the true warrior's cult, uh, calling the true warrior ethos. So this, these books, even though they are very long and quite well liked from some of the reviews I've seen online, especially from LDS children, they're definitely almost infomercials for his warrior ethos series. So I think, you know, if you had your children read all these books, you'd want to take them to see Jason Mao speak on the warrior ethos somewhere. So they're definitely infomercials for the warrior ethos series. So he launches into this tirade about a perfect warrior and mercy and good judgment. I mean, all good things. I'm not saying they're not good things, but it's definitely infomercial. And Moroni then sends Amahu, I'm going to call him Amahai, Amahuhai, Amahuhai to check on the cavalry unit and the supply chain. So after he's gone, Moroni play, uh, prays to God for uh, to, to reveal the purpose of this war and to help him win it quickly. And then there's a lot of description of the camp, a uh, very intricate description. I mean, he's very Mao is very descriptive in his writing. And he's describing the tents, the setup, the armor of the soldiers. It kind of alludes to the fact that all the armor and weapons that the soldiers wore were much better than they used to be because of some of Moroni's reforms. Evidently in the past, the richer a soldier's family was, the better their armor and the better their weapons. So, yeah. So he's made some good reforms. And then during his prayer, Moroni feels a tingle. That's exactly what it's described as, a tingle that he knows is the hand of God on his shoulder. And he peers over at his bunk bed and sees the Laban sword, that very sword that uh, a Nephi had taken from the city of Jerusalem when he killed Laban, when he took the brass uh, shields or the brass plates. And he kind of looks at it and he realizes just how Blessed he is because he actually uses the weapon as his weapon of war, whereas even his father, who held it before him, would only use it to stir up the troops at the beginning. It was kind of symbolic, but Moroni, because of his great strength and stature, could actually wield the sword in battle. So he's thinking about that. And he's also remembering that it should never, ever be unsheathed unless it's for the defense of the people. And he sticks to that rule. And they wanted, the book wanted you to know that. And then we get a very long flashback. As Moroni thinks back to when he was a young cavalry lieutenant, himself serving under his father, Joshua, who was at that time the, the supreme general of the entire Nephite army. And it was during one of the many wars that they fought with the Lemonites, and it was the Battle of Jershon, where there were lots of people dead, both Nephites and uh, Lamanites. Uh, everybody was dead, and the uh, 
The battle had moved from one area further down a river where other units were continuing the battle. Moroni and his cavalry unit were looking for Joshua, his father, to kind of find out what they were supposed to do next. They approached one of the battlefields with lots of dead people. I mean, I guess this looked like uh, Gettysburg. I mean, that many dead people. And he approached medics in a, that were in a wagon that were looking for survivors to take back to the surgeon's tent in the Nephite camp. And he, they kind of approached the wagon, and they see the driver of the wagon is a young Nephite soldier that Moroni thinks has soulless eyes. And he, as he approaches, the soldier tries to get up, and he's on a crutch because his leg is injured, and he managed to stand up and give the salute. And he kind of, Morona kind of noted that there were, you know, dead men or, or wounded men stacked like firewood in the back of the wagon, and that the any, doing this kind of work would suck the soul out of somebody. So he com complimented him on... Uh, Moroni complimented the young man on the job he was doing, and but he also wanted to know why there were so many in the wagon and why it was taking so long to remove the dead. And the young soldier kind of started to tear up a little bit and said that it was just as bad in camp. There was only one surgeon, and there were literally people stacked around or laying around his tent waiting for medical attention. So it didn't matter how long it took them to bring people back. It would be days before some of them would be seen. And it was at that point Moroni had an epiphany that things needed to change. Not only did the, the armor situation to protect more of the people need to be changed, there needed to be more doctors and surgeons and other medical people in camp to take care of the amount of wounded that they would see. And then he asked if he knew where his father was, and the young man said that he had seen him, and he pointed toward a patch of trees not far away, they saluted, and Moroni and his cavalry rode toward the patch of trees. And as they rode off, they actually left their own water and rations behind for the medics and said to please use them to feed the people that were wounded as well as themselves. Once they got toward the patch of trees, he heard Joshua's voice. He dismounted and walked to his father, who was actually having his left arm stitched up by a medic. Um, as he approached his father, his father took turned to him and started to basically tirade that they had been ambushed and that this is the worst wound he had ever received in battle and how was he going to explain it to his mother or to Moroni's mother, his wife. And he asked Moroni, who had evidently been on a reconnaissance mission of sort, what the report was. And Moroni said that they were several miles behind enemy lines and that he suggested them retreating out to save lives. Well, his father wasn't having it. He was going to stitch up the rest of his army and march down to join the rest of the units in battle so that they could hopefully win this win this war. But Moroni said it had a different idea. He said, I have seen the Lamanite command camp and I know where it is and it's it's saturated with wounded right now. All their soldiers are all fighting our soldiers. So it would be great. It would be a great way to end this war quickly if we could capture that camp. And I think we can do it if we take cavalry and infantry and kind of surprise them. If we have our archers barrage them with arrows. And then in the midst of all that confusion, we split cavalry into two units and infantry going right up the middle that we would be able to take their camp and capture their senior staff, which had to be at the camp. 
And his father thought for a minute, and he at first Moroni thought that Joshua was about to chastise him, but then his father agreed and said, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. So we can launch the surprise attack, capture their command st uh, staff, and take all their supplies for us. Great idea. Joshua called for Sergeant Major, who was a gristled old soldier that was Joshua's best friend from childhood, and ordered him to amass the troops for uh, an attack, and he goes about that. And then we start seeing detailed descriptions of every person's armor. The archers didn't have armor. Uh, infantry had the heaviest armor. Cavalry had lighter armor, but it also depended on the amount of money that the person's family had, about whether they got, if they had been to the Royal Academy, they would have you know, much better armor than if they had just joined. So he, at that moment, made another mental note that he needed to improve the, arm, the armor and the weapons of everyone. They brought his father, who was an old infantry soldier, they brought him his shield and his um, spear, and he couldn't use his shield because of the wound on his arm, so he cast it away and got a bigger spear and also had his sword. And he marveled at his father and thought how a lot of leaders just command a battle from, you know, way up on a hill. And they see kind of what's going on below, whereas his father was always on the front lines. His father was a true leader of men. So they all, they all amassed. They had two cavalry units, one led by him, one led by Amarahai, and... Then his father was going to lead the infantry. Then they had archers commanded by the sergeant major. And they would first sneak to the Lemonite camp. They would fire arrows in, two rounds, barrages of arrows. And then they would push in with the two cavalry units and the infantry unit and quickly take the camp. It didn't matter if they were outnumbered. This would work. And so Joshua led a prayer. And then they shouted their... Liberty is kind of like very brave heart like Liberty, and then they marched for the Lemonite camp. They arrive to the uh, to a little ridge overlooking the Lemonite camp. They manage to sneak down into the heavy brush around it. the The two cavalry troops and the infantry wait. They see the archers starting to amass. They see the sergeant major give the give the order and a barrage of arrows is flaming arrows is fired at the Lemonite camp and everything bursts into flames tents wagons everything there's a lot of you know now confusion at the camp a lot of action as they try to put out the fire and get supplies away from the fire so very you know you've seen it in a lot of medieval war movies very very medieval and so they wait until they fire another barrage of arrows, which just add to the confusion, and then both cavalry units charge. And once the cavalry unit gets a few yards ahead, then the infantry starts to move forward as well. And for a while, the Lemonites don't even see them coming, but they finally start trying to amass some archers when they do see them coming. But by that time, the huge, uh, the Nephite cavalry has pretty much bowled over them. And, uh, we get descriptions of hand-to-hand -hand battles, and the infantry enters, and it's just a huge melee, like you would see in a lot of, like, Braveheart or, you know, war movies. Uh, there's descriptions of how Moroni killed several people on his way in. He used his war horse as a weapon. He used his spear. He killed an axe soldier with a, with a spear. As we have seen, the Lemonites do not, according to this book, wear armor. So, 
I guess they're easy to kill. We also get a description of a few of the Lamanite archers managing to come together and to protect the cavalry. They move into what is called a flying V. Yeah, a flying V, like the Mighty Ducks. And they put their shields together and it protects everybody. So, Mighty Ducks, Coach Bombay. So, more melees and they finally fight, fight their way to what they think is the command tent. And they see specialized honor guards outside and people tell them and... Another soldier whispers to Moroni, those are the Zoranites, the honor guard, the, high, the aristocrats. And so they're dressed differently than the other soldiers, and they end up fighting their way through them. They finally get into the inner sanctum of the tent, and they see all the Lamanite officers there have kind of taken up a semicircle around a throne. There's gold, there's like luscious, great furnishings inside this inner sanctum of the command tent and there is a man with a crown on slumped over his chair dead from a self-afflicted knife wound he had stabbed himself in the stomach there is a young girl kneeling before him crying evidently his daughter the uh, but the lemonite officers have taken up a semicircle and they're going to defend oh during the battle moroni was almost killed by one of the honor guards but Amarahai had managed to kill a guy from the back. So we had that note, oh, you owe me another. So another bromance moment there. And basically, Moroni speaks in broken Lemonite language to what he considers to be the, the main officer, asking them to surrender. If they surrender and sign a treaty of peace, ending this war and all future wars, that he will let them walk out of here. With, with no more death. And the guy really doesn't believe him, but he he recognizes Moroni, and he asked, are you the great Nephite leader Joshua? No, but I'm his son. And so they have this whole conversation where this Lemonite leader, like, basically gives him a pump up for being the son of the great leader Joshua, and they agree that if the princess who is still weeping over her father, agrees that they will do it. The main general of the Lemonites introduces himself as Lahunti, and he says the princess's name is Aonai. So she speaks to Moroni and broken Nephite, but basically says, yes, they will agree, but can she have time to prepare her father's body for transport? And of course, they give the permission. So... They actually, he actually says, but before they can let them leave, they need to send messengers out to tell their, for the rest of their armies they have surrendered so that the war is over. Lahuntai says, I need to ride out and be the one to give that message because our war chieftains are not always the most loyal. They may not listen to a messenger, which, you know, and then Moroni has this thought about how that would never be the case with Nephite soldiers. They're better trained. They would listen to the messages from the trumpeteers and messengers without recourse. So, yeah, so uh, he sends somebody with him, but yes, he has Lahunte ride out to give the messages to the armies himself. And so they leave the command tent with some guards, and he sends Sergeant Major, who's finally found his way there, to go out and look for his father. A few minutes later, uh, Sergeant Major runs up to him and says, you need to come quickly. They run toward um, the center of the camp where there's this wagon with a lot of people surrounding the wagon and there's surgeons all around it and Moroni's stomach drops you know because he knows what he's about to see and sure enough his father Joshua 
has been shot three times by arrows and is near death. The surgeon knows he's near death. He says it's in God's hands. And so Moroni has this very um, long and melodramatic conversation with his father. His father tells him to lead well, gives him the, the sword of Laban at that point, and then tells him to please tell your mother I will love her forever. And then he dies. And then Moroni reaches over and closes his father's eyes and they prepare the body for transport back to the neophyte capital. And then we flash forward again to the neophyte capital where the major judge, because kings were um, made, kings were dissolved with the neophytes under King Mosea, is who he said. And there were judges, just like judges of Israel in the old world, were raised up to be the true giver of God's law and to also fulfill the will of the people. So he is now, because of his father's death, he is being crowned ultimate commander of the Nephite army by the current judge. So we see that. And then we fast forward back to the current scene where they are, where he's at his arm, where he's at his camp. And we, he briefly has a thought that how King, how Queen Anani, excuse me, Queen Anya, Anya came under the influence of Zarahemna, who was evil and an antichrist among his people and had tricked her into carrying on several wars in spite of the peace treaty over the years. And they were in the midst of another one where Zarahemni was attempting to capture the Nephite city of Manti. And this is where this army was heading is to the city of Manti to help the defenders there. The men of Manti, remember that ties into the Chad Daybell book, defend the city of Manti, which would later become a God-ordained place for a temple that would actually be built under Joseph Smith. So we now we know the history of Manti according to Jason Mao. Anyway, and this is uh, Manti, Utah, by the way. I'm also saying this is you know, kind of why Joseph Smith, I suppose, left Missouri and took his people out west. But anyway... I'm giving you a very abridged version because if I went through this entire book, this would be like a three-hour video. So I'm trying to keep this under an hour. So that's the reason for the abridged speed up. A lot of these names are difficult. I'm doing my best. So please, please be, please be patient with me. So they finish basically marching to Man. There's several skirmishes with the with the Lemonites. He sees that Zerahemna is going to fight dirty. That they, you know, they attack and run, attack and run, attack and run. Sounds a lot like the Plains Indians attacking the Calvary, doesn't it? So yeah, where this is the explanation for Native Americans, Jason. Anyway, so we see a lot of those tactics along the way when they finally reach the city of Manti and they take up position in the city and outside the city. There's a huge bridge that connects it to a huge river and then the rest of the plains. Well, so the Moroni's forces take up position. They they are told to hold, they know they need to hold that bridge uh, at all costs. And then we're at the point now where Zerahemni and the Lemonites are amassing outside Manti, the entire army. They're no longer doing the, you know, the ambush and run, ambush and run kind of thing to kind of break them down. They're now amassing into one huge force outside the city of Manti. And there's several clashes between um Moroni's forces and the uh, 
Zarahemnaz forces outside Manti, and some the Lemonites win, some the Nephites win, and there's a lot of death and carnage, and uh, a lot of his war chieftains want Zarahemnaz to retreat because they're taking heavy losses. And he is filled with so much hate, according to this book, that he would rather wipe out his entire army, his entire people, rather than surrender to Moroni. So, in his head, we hear a plan from Zarahemnai, as I said, who's a descendant of that servant, who, so he's just an evil person, say that if he keeps attacking and kills almost all the soldiers on both sides, that perhaps Moroni will offer a peace treaty and surrender to save lives. So he tells them to take the bridge at all costs. So there's this huge bloody battle on the bridge between the Neophytes and the Lemonites, and eventually the bridge collapses with a lot of Lemonite soldiers on it, and they all just drown. And now there's really no way for the rest of the Lemonite army to get across. So Zerahemni, who had come across with an earlier force, is now trapped against the river, and there's no way to get out of Manti since the bridge has collapsed. And so they just move forward in a huge clash with the neophytes. Meanwhile, Erahemni is across the river with the um, rest of the uh, neophyte cavalry. They had fought their way over the river and was trying to flank the Lemonites from behind. So they are now behind the Lemonite army, and he has his archers take up positions, and they just start sending arrows into the Lemonite army and kill as many as possible. So you have the Lemonites now on one side or another side, and then they're being flanked by the Neophyte army, and it is, he describes a very bloody battle. Finally, uh, Zarahemni has just kind of this snap and he leads his soldiers in kind of a berserker style attack right into the heart of the Nephite army at the gates of Manti and is just killing people all along. He's killed a lot of Nephites. The Nephites are having a hard time fighting him because he is going totally berserker. And Moroni at that point was getting very angry. He just wanted to annihilate them and then he hears the spirit of the Lord come on him and tell him peace. Make peace. Since he knows the Lord is wanting him to make peace and not kill any more people. So he decides that that's what he's going to do. But by this time, Zerahemni has fought his way, and he's basically standing right in front of Moroni and, he, Moroni, and is challenging him to a fight. And Moroni says, if it will stop this carnage, I'll do it. So those two start to fight, and everybody basically stops fighting and watches them. And then once Moroni has the upper hand, Zerahemni backs away and starts ordering his troops to attack again, but by this time they're all stopped because they were watching the battle, and basically Moroni announces that if you surrender right now, lay down your arms, and vow never to fight the Neophytes again, you can, you can leave here and go home. I want to go home and marry and have children and be a farmer. I don't want to do this anymore. So very Mel Gibson and every Mel Gibson war movie that's ever been made. So he says, if you do that, so a lot of the Lemonite armies lay down their arms and start to walk away. Meanwhile, Zerahemni is just going crazy, grabs his sword and charges Moroni, but um, Moroni's guards defend him, and they form tight ranks around him, and basically Moroni lays down a challenge. 
he says, we're going to give you 20 minutes to make up your, your mind. We're going to amass our troops, take our wounded to the back, and we're going to amass our troops for one final attack. You have 20 minutes to make up your mind what you want to do with the rest of your force. If you'll surrender and sign a treaty of peace, you can leave here now. If you don't, we're going to annihilate every single one of you. But take this time, this 20, now 19 minutes, I mean, he's counting it down, to move your wounded to the back and figure out what you're going to do. And he walks away. And basically, uh, Zarahemnai throws this tantrum. A lot of the Lemonite soldiers are surrendering, and Moroni basically speaks to them and says that they are brothers, they are from the same world, they share the same God, and God has delivered them. So to be peaceful from now on, and Zarahemnai is just going batshit. He assembles the, the Lemonites that are still on his side. All of the, it made a point to say all the Zoramites, for the most part, are dead or have fled. So all the honor guard, the aristocrats, are gone. So it's literally just Zarahemnai and the rank-and-file Lemonites, no more Zoramites, according to this. And basically, uh, Zarahemnai has his people start marching forward, and he has this huge thing where he rants that your God is false, there is no God, only the great spirit of the earth, and he just very, and that you're a liar, and we're not going to surrender to you, we would rather die than surrender to you. On seeing how many of his soldiers weren't walking forward with him, he finally relents and tells Moroni he will surrender as well, he walks forward, he drops his sword, and he stands in front of Moroni. But then he goes into this tirade again about a false god and blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, there are two uh, Nephite generals standing behind Moroni, one by the name of Shem and one by the name of Lehi, that sense something is wrong. The Holy Spirit whispers to them to watch Zarahemnai. He's up to something. So they basically walk around to the two sides of Moroni and stand there with their hands on their weapon, weapons watching Zarahemnai. And Zarahemnai then goes into another tailspin. He's got throws a lot of tantrums. Goes into a tailspin of a tantrum and says he will never make peace with uh, uh, Moroni. He would rather die. And he calls for any Lemonite that wants to stand with him to come forward. So about half of the ones left do. The others surrender and walk away. And each time he makes another threat, the spirit is telling Shem and um Lehi to watch him. Well eventually uh Zarahemnai does charge Moroni and tries to bring his sword, but Moroni was so trusting he had sheathed his sword, and so he's running at him, his sword coming down on him. Basically, um Shem steps around with his drawn sword and blocks the blow and then is able to do kind of this acrobatic move and come back up and basically scalps. Zarahemnai, and he falls to the ground in pain. Some of his soldiers grab him and pull him down to the edge of the river where they wash his head and bandage it, where Shem reaches down and holds the scalp up for everybody to see. So this is the history of scalping. This is why Native Americans scalp people, because many years ago, the Nephites scalped their leader. So once he's bandaged, there's another huge battle with archers attacking the Lamanites from the other side of the river. And then they're fighting the neophytes that are already there, so they're being flanked in. Most of them have died. Some of them start throwing down their weapons and getting on their knees, putting their hands on top of their head. And so they're fighting. In fact, uh, during one of the archers' barrages, this huge Lamanite soldier crashes down on top of Zarahemnai. So he can't even move. He's trapped under a dead guy. 
And finally, uh, Moroni fights his way to the center. He's looking for Zerahemni to end this once and for all. He finds Zerahemni. He pulls the dead guy over him and stands over him with his sword. And that's when Zerahemni starts begging like a bitch for, for mercy. And he surrenders. He surrenders the Lamanites. He promises no more war. And so Moroni spares him and they all part peace and then it tells about how they spend several more days there uh putting the bodies of the dead lemonites into the river to be flushed out to the ocean making the lemonite prisoners do it and that's where we end and through all these many battles still a huge um infomercial for the warrior ethos speaking series so there you go and if you want to read the rest of Jason Mao's books, I think they're on Amazon, but I'm not going to be reading any more of them. Uh, I'm going to move on to other cases. Tomorrow I have the case of Dan Johnson, a uh, corrupt preacher and um, politician from Kentucky. I think you'll enjoy that. It's a wild ride. And uh, coming up next week, I will have my uh, long-awaited video on the Christ Shooter, Christchurch Shooter, and the accompanying books that may have inspired him. So... I'll be back soon. Thank you so much. Keto Comic.